Welcome to Crossing the Floor, your non-partisan guide to politics and law for all Year 11 and 12 students in Western Australia. We come to you from the PC Podcast Studio. I'm Miss Pepper. And I'm Mr Clark O'Reilly. All right, fresh, fresh into term four. <laughs> and we've got some sad news, which to report. Well, the humanities fees degrees are, are set to be... God, I wonder where we're going. I thought <laughs> one of us had lost the jobs. Uh, but yes, it is no laughing matter. No. And um, Sterling Griff... Boo. Boo, but also big fan because, I mean, he's provided us with a really great example for oh. Year 11s and 12s to use um, in so many aspects of the course, which we will talk through. So um, let's rewind a second. <laughs> So um, government had some legislation in parliament to increase the cost of, um, among other degrees, humanities degrees, but they're, they're the only degrees that matter. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this is the cost, to bump up the cost yes. because well, they're, they're not job relevant. <laughs> According to the government, okay. yes. So, okay, yeah. so your, your degree, Mr <laughs> Clark O'Reilly, that helped you get your teaching Job not, not, not relevant. relevant at all. Mine neither. Okay. All right. So um these degrees that they're applying some simple laws of supply and demand. Um it sounds like you need an economics degree for that. <laughs> it really does. Uh, and um apparently though this was all just concocted in their own heads, not based on any actual um, mm. data modelling on whether an increase in prices is going to see a shift in students perhaps choosing nursing over a uh, an arts degree. Mm. Um, but I think that's what the government's hoping, is that by making some degrees like teaching, wonderful profession, yeah. and nursing cheaper because we need more teachers and nurses uh, and Humanities degrees more expensive because we don't need anyone with a broad humanities degree just to make them <laughs> good, well-informed human beings in this liberal democracy that we live in. Uh, make them more expensive. Um, all those uh, poor arts degree students will remain poor for the rest of their lives because they'll be paying off this um, excessively expensive university yeah, well, education. When we actually went and have a look at it, I mean they're. They're saying that a teaching or an English or a maths nursing degree annually costs you just under $4,000. Um, but uh, law, economics, uh, humanities, behavioural sciences, things like that are going to be bumped up to just over 14500 So it is, it's a huge discrepancy between those two sorts of degrees. And I suppose the issue is, is that someone doing a law degree and going into a career in the law, their upward tra trajectory in terms of um, income is going to be, they're going to have a far greater capacity mm. to pay that $14,500 per year degree off than someone who leaves uni with an arts degree and perhaps goes into, uh, it'll be a relatively low paying job compared with their law degree counterpart. Um, so um, look, if we're going to link this back to the mm. course as well, um, in terms of the 11s, you know, we're thinking about things like the legislative process at Commonwealth levels. You know, this really um, was kind of a, a fight to the death in the Senate and that crossbench pro proved really important to the Morrison government in order to get this legislation through. Yep. Um, and we saw people like Jackie Lambie and like um, Rex Patrick, former Central Alliance senator, now um, an independent, also 
at the only independent in the Senate, um, as it stands, uh, voting against the bill. Um, and I think I think Jack Lambie's speech was really impassioned. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's worth uh, having a watch. Um, and she really made a, a, a kind of a plea uh, to the other members of the crossbench to, to, to reject this piece of legislation. Um, yes. And I think it was, I really, really respected how she kind of conveyed that that message across. So I think it was really, really good and um, just a shame that it didn't, fell on kind of deaf ears. Well, yes, but look, I mean, Jackie, though, her ears were, were wide open to her electorate. So, mm. you know, she did a wonderful job, if you're thinking um, in year 11s in terms of uh, political representation. All right. Um, you know, Jackie Lambie is not an independent. She's a member of the Jackie Lambie Network. She is the only member of the Jackie <laughs> Lambie Network in federal parliament. But nonetheless, she is a member of a minor party. Yep. Um, but, you know, she she went out and spoke to Tasmanian students, um, you know, vice chancellors of universities to find out what they whether they thought that this legislation was um, whether it should pass or not pass. She actually did her job as senator for Tasmania. So, um Big fan of Jackie Lambie for that. And, you know, that then links in with the Year 12 course in terms of um, functions of parliament, lawmaking process in parliament. Contemporary issue related to political power. Absolutely. You know, right. the, the Morrison government, their power, um, their political power is very much reliant on that crossbench mm. in the Senate, allowing them to get their government policy through. So, um, look, we're disappointed, mm-hmm. mostly with Sterling Griff, we we didn't expect much more of Pauline, really. Although I would have thought she would have, um, you know, come into you know the Queenslander students. Mm. So I don't know. I was kind of hoping she might go go one for the battlers. But I think I think what this does open up the, the discussion of is well, what was what was Sterling Griff promised? What, yes. You know, what was this? And what was he promised? Well, I think looking into it, it was there was a whole heap of um, support uh, from the from the Commonwealth um, and concessions to give. Uh, South Australia more Commonwealth supported places um, and then kind of some protections for students who kind of fail some courses they wouldn't have to pay back the full cost of their degree. Um, so we sold the rest of Australian students up the river so that South Australian students Some get... people would argue that. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think we at, at, at this podcast would do that but I, but I think that some people would argue that. Um, and just reading uh, between the lines here I, I think it was uh, under the reforms Adelaide University University of South Australia and Flinders would all be classified as low-growth metro campuses, which would mean more uh, revenue from the Commonwealth. So, going back to that kind of notion of what you know, what is a senator uh, meant to do? Well, you know, you could argue that a senator is there to represent the interests of their state. If he's gone into bat for South Australia, even if it is at the expense of the, the rest of the nation, um, you, you could kind of give him a little bit of props to say, well, maybe he's acting kind of in in the best interests of the people of. South Australia. So Sterling Griff did a sterling job. Oh, fantastic. Let's continue on the theme of our mate, Jackie Lambie. (laughs) Big fan. The Jackie Lambie Network. Yes, the Jackie Lambie Network. Um, Look, she's been doing some wonderful work. Uh, in my opinion, in the last few months. Um, so another really important piece of legislation, again, links to all the same syllabus mm. dot points that are, were relevant to the Humanities Bill, uh, was um, her work on the um, government's proposed mobile phone ban for um, asylum seekers. 
um, in detention centres. So now, do you have some details on that, Mr Clark O'Reilly? What were this, the details of the bill? <clears throat> this is uh, proposed changes to the Migration Act, and it would basically give uh, Peter Dullen um, the uh, ability to declare certain items, uh, such as mobile phones or SIM cards, prohibited, uh, and then grant the Border Force the ability to seize those um, items and then kind of search um, uh, the, the, the kind of the contents of the phones. Sorry, uh, the additional powers to search uh, the detainees, not the contents of the phone. Um, so essentially, it's basically the power to take mobile phones away from people here um, claiming asylum. So it's a huge, huge kind of blow to uh, the people in um, uh, in um, kind of uh, de detention, as it were, as a lot of these people, I suppose, would use this to kind of contact loved ones back in the, the countries that they fled. So you think about it, you, you kind of fled um, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, Pakistan, maybe, and you want to make sure that the people you've left behind are kind of doing okay. And, and this mobile phone is your kind of one route to kind of speak to them. Now, remember, if we think about people in prison, it's, it's absolutely fine to take their uh, mobile phones away from them. You know, you can't have mobile phones in prison because they've been convicted of a crime and they could they potentially continue that criminal activity. These people haven't been convicted of any crimes. So I think yes. I think it is quite important to understand that this isn't just a blanket rule that anyone in a, in a prison-like state loses their mobile phone. These people here um, haven't committed it. Uh, and advocates have basically said this is a lifeline for yes. people. And look, even people in prison are able to make phone calls outside of prison, prison visits. Absolutely. So they're not completely cut off, I think, unless, yeah, there might be very few circumstances yeah. where yeah. they are completely cut off. Um, and so I suppose uh, my um, uh, love for Jackie Lambie uh, in this instance um, stems from the fact that, again, she did her job as a representative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and conducted an online poll to see what pe what people thought or ha how people thought she should vote on this bill. Um, this is and this is new. This, this is this is yeah. this is a, a a real variation of those kind of models of representation. If you think back to the Elevens course, oh, absolutely. This is something that I've never come across before. Where really kind of mm. going and taking um, real. Uh, instructions from your yeah act, of, acting as a true as true a, delegate absolutely she is she is was literally being a voice for the people and acting on on the online poll so she's embraced the world wide web has jackie and um she said that she received more than one hundred thousand responses to her survey on the bill um and 96 percent of responses um mm. wanted her to vote no and so that's what she did and that's it so and I wonder what she would have done if if it had been overwhelmingly the other way. Oh, look, Jackie is a woman that definitely sticks to her principles. So I can only imagine she mm. would she would go with whatever the um, the consensus was. So um, another wonderful example of um, that yep. that representative democracy in action. Yeah, and 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 also you know fighting for something that is actually quite quite important and and something that does need to be looked at in a bit more kind of depth. All right, hot off the press, so to speak. Uh, the return. The, the return, return of one of my favourites. Of uh, Kevin Rudd. It's a name we haven't um, seen bandied about with any real uh, weight uh, last, of late. The last we heard of him, I think he was on the, the 
Foursquare. Yes. Court or the the, the circuit travelling <laughs> around the world, challenging <laughs> high school children to games of Foursquare. Well, he also, like Lambie, has embraced the World Wide Web. <laughs> and uh, it's otherwise known as the internet, for yeah. those of you out there that aren't familiar with the WWW. Uh, but he, I mean, he broke the internet. I mean, kind of Kardashian style. Yeah. Um, but not quite as salacious as uh, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> he did it with a petition on the Australian <laughs> Parliament House website to call for a royal commission into the Murdoch press. Um, so uh, anyone can sign this petition um, and it's um, freely available, currently sitting at uh, 348,026 signatures. Um, let's Let's take it. Back, back before we get into it and let's find out well, what is this petition all about the so, power of the power of murdoch power of murdoch um so an undue influence that's what the petition is calling for a royal commission into absolutely so yeah murdoch rupert murdoch um owns a significant portion mm. of the press not just in australia but um no. but worldwide has significant influence over the press. outcome of elections. Yes, in in the UK, you know, there's yep. there's discussions about his influence over um, the election of numerous uh, governments. Tony Blair. If you watch mm-hmm. the uh, the the wonderful Murdoch, well, it's not wonderful in terms of what Murdoch's influence is, but it's very insightful on mm. ABC iView at the moment. Um, great doco on on the influence of Murdoch. Same thing in the US. You know, it's he, supremely powerful. News yes. Corp is just absolutely the dominant. Uh, right of centre political um, kind of um, media outlet. Um, and as you've kind of pointed out, it just seems as if anyone, uh, any political leader worth their salt has to almost kind of pay homage. Yes. Travel to, I and mean, this is one of the big things that I haven't watched all of the documentary, but, you know, watching these elected leaders or potential next prime ministers travel to pay homage to the man, almost feudal-like, um, kind of offering up uh, their kind of promises to do what he wants. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean... And, and it's, yeah, sorry, and, and it's just something that, you know, has he has become so powerful um, over the most, over the last, you know, 20 to 25 years that I think Rudd has finally um, had enough. Well, he has. And look, I think the, the statistic that um, probably sums it all up is that 70% of newspaper circulation... Um, in Australia is, you know, News, news Corp owned. Wow. So 70 now. 70%. Um, and in some states they have a monopoly. Mm. But um, so, you know, News Corp um, owns the Australians. Mm-hmm. The only national newspaper we have is owned by Murdoch. Um, and, you know, they... Sky, Sky News. news yep. Right. Um, and his papers and definitely Sky News are pushing a very particular political agenda um anyone uh, who's familiar with the work of andrew bolt right uh he's on sky news so if you understand andrew bolt's work and that he's uh, a valued member of the sky news team that just about sums it up and those kind of going across the pond uh to the united states thinking about fox news thinking about the power of fox news again huge power another um murdoch owned kind of entity Uh, and back in the uk uh the sun hugely popular uh, daily rag um that uh, has a circulation that had upwards of about five million readership at one point so massively powerful so what has the foursquare king decided <laughs> to do about it so um 
Rudd's calling for a royal commission into um, the influence of the Murdoch press and essentially he's he's wanting um, to um, shed light on um, the, I suppose Rudd would argue, like insidious influence that Murdoch has on our democracy. Yeah. Um, now, so... just remind us, because royal commissions, uh, we've, we've seen a number of royal commissions most recently, um, thinking of the banking aged royal care, commission, banking. aged care. Um, it's not on our syllabus. No. It's not. It used to be for those that remember the old course. There's probably not many people <laughs> listening that do, but it did used to be an accessible point before it's gone. However, I still think it kind of fits under this executive. It does. I mean, I'd, I'd query um, whether it would be something you'd want to focus on mm. as a year 12 student because um, it's technically not in the syllabus. Mm. But um, this is a, a broad brush politics podcast, and it's important to um, to discuss all the hot hot issues, whether so, you can write about them in the exam or not. But a, but a royal commission. Sorry, coming back to it? your point, what, what is it? Um, so um, it's an investigation. Importantly, it's independent of government, yep. um, and it's into a matter of great importance. So they've got broad powers um, to hold public e- hearings, call witnesses under oath, and compel evidence. Um, and then they make recommendations to government about what should change. So in essence, it, it, you, you can think of it um, with this kind of quite wide sweeping powers. Uh, and as you just pointed out, that the ability to kind of compel evidence. But you say the intrinsic weakness is they can only make a recommendation to parliament. Yes. Yeah. Who don't have to act upon. Well, a recommendation to government. Right. Recommendation who can back then to try the to potentially pass laws through parliament. Right. Um, so... I think, though, I mean, Kevin Rudd's, uh, he's, you know, try, trying to, well, he's either trying to enact re- revenge on Murdoch for mm. uh, his his failed bid to win government in um, 2013. That's good. Um, or uh, maybe he's trying to do the noble thing and save Australia's democracy. But regardless of what you believe his intentions are, um do we think, though, Mr. Clark O'Reilly, that this is actually going to have any? Where's this going to go? No, the short answer is no. <laughs> it's not going to go anywhere. Um, I think you can look back at the history of um, committees, select committees that have been kind of set up to look into media ownership and and the power of the media. They seemingly go nowhere. Um, so I would look at this and just think that there's no great need at the moment for the Morrison government to enact this or to call this Royal Commission. Um, would it I think, indeed be political suicide for uh, Morrison absolutely. to call a Royal Commission? I, I think he would. Which is, the, which is the problem that Rudd is trying to solve. And, yeah. But. And that's it. And I think that if you're, if you're the government right now with everything going on, um, like you said, do you really want to kind of burn your bridges with Murdoch? Do you want to burn your bridges with, with the Australian and other kind of Sky News and so on and so forth to call for a Royal Commission when... Uh, the reality is we've got bigger uh, concerns with COVID and so on and so forth. So the cynic in me, the cynic in me um, sees this as just another way for uh, the Foursquare King to kind of bring his name back into the public limelight, to make himself relevant again. Um, but I don't necessarily see it going anywhere. Okay, moving moving to the US as we we must do we in must, these in these, these times. Um, 
And looking, I know we spoke last episode about mm. the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and what we've then seen since uh, that last podcast recording was um, the process now to replace her seat mm. uh, on the Supreme Court bench. Uh, and they're pushing on with, um, we've just, just wrapped up some Senate um, hearings uh, into um, Amy Coney Barrett. Yep. Um, she would, if if confirmed by the Senate, would and be more than likely to be confirmed. Potentially, yes. We will we will potentially know within the next week mm. whether uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, will be replaced by um, Amy Coney Barrett, who would be the fifth woman in U.S. history to sit on the Supreme Court bench. Which are pretty poor numbers, really, when you think about them. Yeah, considering. Of... <laughs> Um, I didn't know it was that low. So, and and at forty eight years old, she'll be the youngest justice on that on the United States Supreme Court. And if you think about that appointment for life, mm. she's got the potential to have you know a huge, huge influence for years to come. And yeah, and the same was said about Brent Kavanaugh. They, yes. I think he was fairly young when he went on them, not as young uh, as uh, as Barrett, but the same sort of uh, kind of fears, as it were. Yes, and again, he's another conservative appointment. Years. Yes. Yes. So um, we've got, the, there's been, I think, lots of issues in terms of um, the fact that these this this um, appointment process is going ahead at this point in time. Mm. And can you perhaps just explain why this is so controversial? Um, yeah, and I think we touched upon it last time, this, this idea that should you be, if, if there's a presidential election two weeks today, should you be nominating a replacement for a Supreme Court justice or should you follow the kind of the established precedent um, and make that um, appointment, make that uh, proposed appointment um, once the outcome of the election is known? So Republicans have said, constitutionally speaking, there's nothing stopping us from doing it. This is the power of the president. The Supreme Court justice seat needs to be filled. Uh, Democrats obviously would contend by saying, well, the precedent had been set back in 2016 um, and you should allow uh, the next Supreme Court justice to be nominated by the president come January 2021, not the president right now. And look, it does seem a bit cheeky on Trump's part um, to be going ahead with this despite that opposition. Mm. Um, And... Um, indeed, 57% of Americans, according to a Washington Post um, and ABC News poll um, in the US, said that it should really be the, the winner of the election yeah. in a few weeks' time that nominates that um, that person to fill Ginsburg's seat, not not Trump in a last-ditch effort to sway yeah. the, uh, the high court in a 6-3 um, conservative to progressive um, bench. So... Um, you know, also I think uh, an important reminder um, to reflect on our own High Court and that process of appointment um, where, you know, we've got a couple of judges who are coming up to the age of 70 right now and uh, those, um, they'll be retiring um, before they turn 70 mm. um, and those that appointment process in Australia is is way less political. And I think part of it is because there is that age cap. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and, 
in conjunction with the fact that we don't have a Bill of Rights like the US. So we don't see the Supreme or our High Court as having um, a critical uh, decision-making um, power over our our everyday mm. rights. And I don't think I don't think I've ever looked at our High Court and think that it that there is a clear partisan divide. No. I think in America it's in, it's quite widely accepted that there will be you know four conservative leaning judges and four liberal leaning judges and then one kind of swinging judge. But I don't think we look at our court and and have that same opinion. And I personally think it's a good thing. I I don't like this notion that the Supreme Court or the High Court should be divided along kind of political lines. I just think you're there to interpret the Constitution or you're there to hear cases on appeal or you're there to interpret, you know, statutes. But I don't think you should really be deciding upon these matters based on your own personal preference. That just seems to be um, ludicrous to me, but but that, but is, that is their system uh, of government. Absolutely. And look, it yeah, it, it's very interesting. You know, we often watch with an Australian perspective mm. and, and I don't know, feel quite smug about um, how much more sensible our, our system, I, I suppose we had the benefit of, uh, of looking at the US <laughs> and how things were done and then choosing what to apply and not apply. Absolutely. In our system. Now, um, look, it would be remiss. Uh, remiss. <laughs> it would be remiss of us <laughs> to just be consumed by the US election uh, week after week. Um, there's another there's, big election. Well, two big elections, really. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to tee up the ACT. I thought that was their moment in the sun. There. It was, but also no. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. Oh, yes, yes. So, look, we, look it's been a, a wild weekend of elections. Um, and so. Firstly, New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, resounding victory. What what's going on? What are the what are the, the vital stats there that we should celebrate? Well, the celebrations surrounding Ardern's win, that the the celebrity prime minister mm-hmm. she's been dubbed. Um, the Labour Party talking about landslides, talking about monumental seismic shifts in, in kind of politics. This is this is one for the record books. Uh, and that's I don't think that's actually an exaggeration. They won, or they're, they're predicted to have won when I think all the, the votes now kind of come in, 49.4% of the national vote uh, and 64 out of 120 seats in Parliament. So a resounding majority. Huge, absolutely huge. And it's the first time since 1996 um, uh, that a government would be able to govern alone, so without the need um, uh, for a coalition. Uh, interestingly... Uh, she had, did come out today, actually, and say that she would be open to the possibility of uh, uh, forming a coalition, uh, most probably with the Greens. Um, and I think it it probably is quite indicative of her style of politics that oh, even though she could it. form uh, a government in her own right, even though she could run the country without the need to work with other parties, that she's actually come out and said, well, actually, this country is probably better off um, working uh, as a, or having a kind of a working coalition. Um Reading through or reading between the lines, delving into kind of the, the, the key issues. Obviously, it's 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 the handling of, of COVID-19. She's just been widely praised for how she dealt with it. Um, but obviously, quite a, a, you know, a left to centre, socially progressive platform that it seems that the uh, the Kiwis across the ditch uh, have embraced with open arms. Um, uh, I also think her personal popularity cannot be understated. Um, that kind of charisma that she has. Um, 
in stark contrast to the leader of the Nationals. Um, oh, who... yes. Look, if if you want to see how uh, journalism uh, should be done, um, there is a, a great. I'll, I'll find a clip and put it in the show notes of um, a online, not online. It was a television interview, mm. um, and this uh, New Zealand um, television journalist was was taking uh, no prisoners in this um, interview she did yeah. with. Um, former former member of the national. Yes, yeah. yeah. She would not let him get away with anything, and it was it was good to see. It I was. think you know she 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 didn't let him cross the line at all. Mm. Um, so yeah, so she's she's one. If we're thinking about politics in a in another other country, another country, um, overwhelming victory for her. Um, and I suppose it you know could kind of say that to some extent it's kind of stemmed the flow maybe of populism. Maybe this is the well, the great resurgence of of party-based or platform-based politics rather than... Let's hope it's a sign of things to come that, that uh, with the US election... Let's, let's not. Let's, so, yeah. yes, let's not jinx it. Though. Let's not jinx it. That was what I was looking for. <laughs> but look, you know... Politically neutral. <laughs> back on home soil-ish, uh, but the ACT... This was the big election I thought we were referring to. Well, look, uh, so, um, you know, a, a fact that I was was not aware of um, is that the Labor Party in the ACT um, scored its sixth uh, election victory in a row. Wow. Um, so they're returning for, Labor are returning for a sixth con- consecutive term after almost 20 years in office. Um, shout out to Freya Sander from my <laughs> <laughs> Year 12 politics class today who pointed out that 25% of the voters in uh the ACT are young people, so there's that progress. You know, Labor being more progressive than the Liberal Party, it kind of starts to make a little bit of sense there as to how the Labor Party has had such um, continued success. And what federal Labor wouldn't give for that victory oh, in Canberra? What? Yeah, <laughs> they're going to have to try harder. Maybe get a new leader. I'm not sure. Albo's quite as um, enigmatic as the leader of the Labor Party in. Um, the ACT, Andrew Barr. Um, he's been the Chief Minister for six years um, and on the the podium celebrating his victory, I think it was really wonderful in terms of thinking about the, the representative nature of our parliament. Um, as an openly gay member of parliament, he was there with his husband um, celebrating the, the night um, hand in hand uh, with, uh, I think, Lady Gaga playing in the background. So, uh, look, just sounds like it was a, a wonderful night all round. Now, in some developing news, uh, <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, it, it's a, it's an issue that's kind of been simmering for a while, but it's kind of come out again in Senate estimates this week. Is the purchase. Mm by the federal government of a parcel of land um, in Western Sydney for uh, the building of a new airport. Um, and, and to put that into context, the building of this airport is potentially going to happen in 30 years. Yes. That's that's to kind of make that quite clear. This isn't something that's happening. This isn't they're going to about to start building this airport anytime soon. It's a proposed expansion of the Sydney uh, airport. 
Yes. But anyway. Um, and look, if you're a taxpayer, you won't be happy to hear that taxpayers shelled out nearly $30 million to um, a billionaire family um, of uh, dairy farmers. It's a There's lot, money of, in lot milk. of milk. <laughs> there is money in milk. <laughs> um, for this particular parcel of land in Western Sydney. Um, now, the problem being it wasn't worth $30 million, it was worth $3 million. Mm. Uh, so... Um, Big, 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 big problem. Huge there. discrepancy. So where this is really good for for the course at the moment is, is we're looking at that syllabus dot point relating to executive accountability. There's two parts yes. of this story that can be used. So the first really is the report uh, published by uh, the National Audit Office, which basically found that the Department of Infrastructure had paid 22 times what this triangle of land that's what it was it was kind of a, a triangle of land the leppington triangle the leppington triangle that's it I not sure it where name. leppington is <laughs> no uh, maybe an area uh, just outside sydney i'm <laughs> not sure um and the auditor general basically said the department's operations during and after this acquisition and this is the, the crucial bit here fell short of ethical standards so it was actually quite scathing in uh, in this report um but yesterday um, at Senate Estimates, old mate Penny Wong. Oh, look, who al al always got something, uh, a good question. Yeah. Um, she was basically conducting questioning um, of uh, the uh, a guy by the name of um, Atkinson, who um, uh, was, was uh, part of the Department uh, of Infrastructure, um, and basically said to him uh, words to the effect of, um, you know, someone within your department or people within your department have tried to cover this this scandal up before it went to the audit office. Uh, and he replied, Senator, I agree with you. Well, that's a shocking admission. Yeah. And that's why Senate Estimates exactly. is, is a wonderful forum for the uh, airing of these bombshells. Absolutely, because it, we, we know how much dirt can be uncovered at Senate Estimates. So, again, looking at that year 12 course study looking at your syllabus dot point there relating to the power of Saint estimates do not underestimate how powerful it is um so the admission came out um as the department of infrastructure confirmed that two of the employees uh were being investigated uh, for potential breaches of the public service code of conduct um one of them has kind of been moved sideways and i think one has actually been stood down um so this is this is an ongoing uh uh, issue. Uh, if you needed any more kind of examples of how important or how useful this particular case could be, the Australian Federal Police have now got involved. Uh, and they've confirmed last week that the acquisition was now under a criminal investigation. So we've got the AFP looking into this, we've got the Auditor General, and we've got Senate estimates. So this is a crime has possibly occurred. Potentially, allegedly, 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 allegedly. as a result of this sale. That yeah. is, I mean, that is a huge example of executive accountability, exactly. if ever. So Don't mess with the taxpayer. Absolutely not. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Crossing the Floor. I'm Mr. Clark O'Reilly. And I'm Miss Pepper. And the link to my Twitter, as well as the syllabus points covered today, can be found, as usual, in the show notes. <laughs>